Welcome to Basecamp, where men join together to seek deeper understanding of authentic menhood and apply principles from God's Word to our daily lives. If you're looking for the next level in men's ministry, join us and experience a life of Christian fellowship with men sold out for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May God be praised. The subset language in here, which I'd have to strain to read, it says Athens at the time of Hadrian. So Hadrian was probably one of the most renowned Roman emperors of all time. He was a great builder. We know his wall that separated Scotland and England, uh, you know, at the time, essentially the barbarians from the known world. And we know that Hadrian would have ruled in the, the one teens, about 117 AD, so to speak. And Hadrian himself would have been someone that was considered part of the imperial rulers that would have been during the Pax Romana. This was the height of the Roman peace, the height of the Roman Empire. So that's probably within 50 to 60 years of when Paul arrived in Athens. That's what it would look like. Bustling, hustling, lots of activities going on. Next slide. Now, when Paul would have been there, I've already mentioned the temples. So there's a couple of pictures in the slide. It's a little bit busy. But what you see there are a bunch of idols. Okay, and if you look in the background, like you can see a, an idol to that probably would have been a temple and a temple of Jupiter and Pollux or Zeus, as we would have called them in Greek. And he's surrounded by all these like little cherubims that are kind of sitting on him. You know, that'd be kind of cool to have a statue like that of yourself. And then you can see in the inset there's a there's an image too because a lot of the stat a lot of the 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 walls in the surface areas, although they today look just like a bunch of dumpy ruins with brick and some, you know, occasional marble here and there. These things would have been brightly painted. The statues would have been brightly painted. And so you can see here, there's a little picture here. And for those of you who may not know, my passion when I was a young boy, Jack asked me to share about your, your past. I wanted to be an archaeologist growing up my whole life. In fact, at one point, I was dead set after uh, my, one of my uh, first deployments, uh, combat deployments, and I was like, I've had enough of this. I'm going to get out and I'm gonna become an archeologist. And then reality hits you in the face and you have a family and I'm trying to balance grad school and I'm like, this is not gonna work. I'll stick with grad school, but I'm gonna stay in the army. So, and uh, is there any anthropologists in the room or archeologists, raise your hands. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to do that. You're gonna live this life. Anyways, we, we don't wanna, that's not for the story today, but the bottom line is a lot of these statuaries, what we don't realize, we see these white marble statues that, uh, or sometimes they're made of black basalt. They're absolutely beautiful. In the ancient times, they would have been brightly painted. They would have been painting and it would have been something, a sight for the eyes. All these statues glittering around all over the place. And so that's what these. The one in the center picture though, are the ones that are most common. Most, whether or not you were Roman or you were Greek, uh, whether or not you were someone from Cilicia, uh, which is where Paul was from, from that kind of uh, southeastern corner of Turkey, you would have had within your own home a small shrine to the gods. Every single home would have had them. And they would have had small clay figurines anywhere from about this size to about yay big. They also would have been brightly colored and they would have been set in a niche in a place of honor. So everywhere you're going, you're tumbling over idols all, the, all, all over the place. Next slide. So, Paul, as I mentioned before, was someone who was learned, well-educated, born in Cilicia, southeastern Turkey. He came from a wealthy family. He was a hard-working guy. He was a tent maker. So, you know, we often have this image of, you know, Paul is standing back and philosophizing. He probably would have started philosophizing in the tent-making shop. He would have had, you know, 
10 to 15 people working around him and they would have been, you know, taking awls and put, punching him through leather and sheepskin and all that kind of stuff like that. And he would have been talking about the scriptures. He would have been talking about the Torah, talking about the Pentateuch, talking about things. And one of the things that I'm sure that they would have been talking about because they believed in one God was idolatry. And so the verses that you see up here from the book of Judges or from the book of Samuels, in a nutshell, they're telling you that idols are not good. These are foreign gods. These are things that replace. Idol literally is a substitute for God. And so here is Paul, this person. This is kind of a central theme, a central point within Jewish life. And he's literally like, oh my gosh, this whole town is full of idols. Now, why do I say he would have been amazed by that? So here's Scotty Davis's opinion. You can take it for what it's worth. If you add 75 cents, it'll get you a cup of coffee somewhere, not in a Starbucks. In fact, probably nowhere right now. But if you were able to have that 75 cents in Scotty's opinion, why do I say that? Because I think Paul actually was probably pretty excited to go to Athens. I think Paul was someone who was intellectually driven. I think he was also probably pretty cantankerous. He would have been someone someone loved but also someone that probably was not easy to get along with all the time because he was so intense. But I bet Paul loved to go to Athens because everything that he ever thought about of reasoning, which he does throughout all of his letters, all of the epistles, if you will, all of those aspects would have been done in Athens because Athens was the center of reasoning. And so when he's there, I think he probably would have been hyped up. It's like you show up to New York and you're like, I am so excited to be here. I'm going to see Broadway. I'm going to walk around and I've got gum stuck on the bottom of my shoes. And I don't want to touch the handrail in the subway because it is, Lord only knows what's on that subway. But you, get, you guys get the point. It's like you would go somewhere, you were hyped up about it and you get there and you're kind of like, is this for real? Is this place just covered in idols? And I think that's what Paul had in that reaction. Next slide. Okay, so what does Paul do that, that, that is the offense? On your papers, you guys can see there, I put the offense for a reason. There are images that you see, and there's been lots of ink spilled about this, so I'm not a religious expert, if you will, but I can tell you that I've heard this discussion many times. Paul was there to discuss with the philosophers uh, about the, 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 the wonder of Christ. That's not exactly correct. Paul was actually on trial. Paul was defending his own life. And he was going up in front of this place where they brought him to called the Areopagus. Ares for war that we're all familiar with. So the Areopagus sat within the Agora. And so the ancient world, again, this is the archaeology, anthropology nerd coming out. The Agora was this, a central place where you had the Acropolis at the, at the center, essentially. You had a citadel where the leadership would have, would have, would have been. The Areopagus was consistent of these people that they called archons. So Yes, Athens was a democratic city, but in reality, it was ruled by these people called the Archons. Why do I tell you all this? Because the Archons themselves, then when they were done with their six to nine years of rule, they then became members of the Areopagus, this distinguished body, these men and women who would basically sit, we think it was an outdoor area, we're not 100% sure, because a lot of the images that you see are outdoors. And it looks like Paul is kind of, talking to them, and we'll see some of that. Now, did Paul preach in the Agora? Did Paul preach in the temples? Where was Paul preaching? Well, this picture in the inset here, he's actually preaching in the markets. These philosophy or philosophic debates did not happen um, 
in these centers of power, per se. They happened in the marketplace. Paul gets nailed in the marketplace. He's basically in the marketplace. He's preaching about Jesus. He's preaching about the resurrection. And someone picks him up and says, hey, man, you're preaching strange stuff. We want you at the uh, Areopagus, okay? See you at dawn, okay? Well, I mean, as soon as Paul heard that, I mean, you know, if he had a whole meal of, you know, maybe some wine and olives, you know, he may have passed those quickly. He would have been really nervous if you catch my drift. Paul would have been nervous because he's going there on trial. And in fact, they have a place, they have two stones that were supposedly there. One was for the defendant. One was essentially for the prosecutor. The prosecutor would have been someone from the Areopagus bringing him up on a crime. The Areopagus by the first century AD had lost kind of some of its power, if you will, but it was still an organization that could pass a judgment of a death sentence or a beating or, or who knows. Next slide. So Paul's taken up there, and you can see that the trial is set. And so they take him to the Areopagus. They ask him this question, and I think this is really, really interesting. The question itself says, may we know what this new teaching is that you are uh, presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas, as I mentioned before, to our ears, and we would like to know what you mean by them. Now, there's a subset in the text, and even though Luke was a doctor and I know when I was a little boy, I, I grew up as a, as, as a Catholic, and Luke is always pictured like, you know, St. Luke, and he's always like this, and there's some beautiful, dramatic expression on his face. I think Luke had a really wicked sense of humor. Because if you read some of the subtext in here, what does it say? It says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This is Luke kind of giving a jab, I think. He's really giving a jab saying, yeah, they, yeah, they took Paul and they, because remember, Paul is communicating this to, to Luke years later, like maybe even up to a decade later. I'm not, I think somewhere between 60 to 63 AD is when he's writing this. So if you can imagine, he's like sitting there and he's probably having this relationship. Paul's like, yeah, I was in Athens. Oh, really? And they're, they're talking and stuff. And he's like, yeah, and they just kept going on and on about ideas. And Luke was like, oh, tell me about it. I'm a Greek. I know these Athenians. They talk all the time. You know, they remind me of, you know, is anyone here in an FFRDC? FFRDC? Oh, raise your hand. Come on. Come on. Okay. You know, there's a little bit of an element of that. You know, you get some guys coming in from McKinsey and Rand and they're here to tell you, you know, how things are. I, I imagine that's probably what Luke felt in some ways. So that's why that's some of that subtext is in there. Next slide. Oh, uh, can you go back one, please? I'm sorry. I did want to point out when you're at the Areopagus, that's the portion of, and there's a little, there's a little T-tiny plaque there. I've never been there, but the internet told me that that little plaque is actually dedicated to Paul. So when you're standing on the Areopagus, the smaller hill, what you're looking at is that portion of the Acropolis. On the other side of that, that's where you would essentially see the Parthenon that we saw earlier in the picture. Next slide. Okay, so Paul does something absolutely brilliant. And as I read more and more from Acts, I was totally surprised to learn what Paul was really saying. Paul used reason with the Athenians and argued first by establishing a direct connection with them. When he was walking around Rome, or correction, when he was walking around, he would walk around Rome at one point, when he would, different stories, Scott. When he, would, when he was walking around Athens, he came to this point where he actually saw these little niches. These are two examples of what they looked like. They're not from Athens, but they're generally what they would have looked like. They would have been a basin with an empty place that nothing would have stood, and it said dedicated to an unknown God. So you had, in the Greek world, you had, you know, Zeus, you had 
uh, uh, Helena, you know, in the Roman world, you had Jupiter, you had Diana, you had Aries, you know, in Greek, it would have been Mars. I mean, you, you get the picture. There's this pantheon of gods. And essentially, there's this one, basically what they're saying, it's, it's kind of like they're trying to cover all bases. And they're like, yes, we have every god here. And even the unknown god, right? Right? And you can imagine Paul's walking around, he's like, this is absolutely ridiculous. So what he does is he uses this as the hook. And basically, you can see here that Paul stood up uh, in the midst of this august body, and he basically says in the meeting, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. So he makes this connection with him. He's, he's being very respectful to him, if you will. And he's saying, for as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of worship, he's talking about within Athens itself, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. Now, you're probably thinking, Paul, you're, you're on defense. You probably don't want to call them ignorant. But he makes this bold claim. And then he follows it up. He says, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Next slide. And what Paul goes on here, this is a little bit harder to read up on the screen, but I put it down there, are the five points. I didn't do any fill in the blanks. I'm sorry. I never, the whole fill in the blank thing, it just, I wasn't very good at it. So, you know, I'd fill in the blank and then I would not pay attention. And, you know, you ever sit like, when I first came here sometime and I remember looking at the sheet and I hadn't filled in the blanks and one of the other brothers who may or may not go nameless, he was looking over at me and I, I was worried. And then I went back and I was like, okay, I'll fill in the notes. And so I'm going back and I'm like, I don't remember what that was. You know, I'm going to make conversation. Everyone's looking at me, you know, and then, you know, one of those moments like, well, Scott, you know, Romans 831 and you're like, right. I don't know. Well, let me look up my phone. You know, with that one either. So that's the feeling. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that when you're, when you're reading these things, Paul makes essentially five arguments. Okay? And these arguments are something that came out in the Stott book. The first, and what he's doing is he's essentially synthesizing to us the gospel. Now, if you look at what Paul has said here, I'm coming back to my notes to make sure I get this, uh, get this correct. In the five points that he, that he starts with, Notice the first one that he brings up. The first one here is that he says God is the creator of the universe. And he says that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and the earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Hence the rock that I was panning around. These aren't, th th that's not the important part. The important part is God created us. He created the universe. And God, not man, is the sustainer of life. God is the father of human beings. And here I think it's interesting because in point three and point four, Paul is actually using the reasoning of both Stoics and Epicureans. In the first one where Paul says, if you can see in the passage there in 28, it says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Paul's reasoning from Epimenides of Canossus. This is from the 6th century. What he's doing is he's establishing a connection with these people in the Areopagus who would have been like, hey, I know that guy. I, I read that scroll last week. Oh, oh, that's a pretty good point. And I'm listening to a Jew, a Jew from Silesia, who's preaching this. He's actually kind of preaching like me. This, this is very interesting. And then he says, he goes on and he says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold and silver and stone an image made by human design and skill. We are his offspring. Here, Paul is reasoning from the Stoic Herodotus of Cilicia, from his, actually from his hometown. There's also 
another discussion that I read in a book, and I wasn't exactly sure what it meant, but I believe that Cleanthes was someone who was an earlier philosopher, and this philosopher was borrowing from each other. So some of these quotes would have been like the Yogi Berra quotes of their day. You know, like, hey, if you don't know where you're going, any road will lead you there. You know, and you're like, oh, Yogi Berra, that's, I'm going to write those down. And next thing you know, you have a Yogi Berra website that you can go to. You got to think about that in these days, because these philosophers would have had these scrolls that would have been embedded in libraries, but they would have been able to go to them and memorize them. They didn't have this idol. They didn't have the idol that we watch at home that maybe 72 inches and that we watch football on, but they had other idols that they went to and that they read about and they philosophized. The final one is he says, God is the judge of the world. So what happens when Paul makes this case? So these are the last two points that are up here. And so I've already read from these passages up here. This is another view uh, from the Areopagus. What is the point that Paul is making? Paul is essentially synthesizing Christianity in basically five key points. And he's providing to them in his final part before they pass judgment on him about the resurrection. And he says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, so this is Lou, <coughs> he says, some of them sneered. So they were, you know, kind of being, um, you know, disingenuous to him. But others said, we want you to hear again on this subject. So basically what happens is, is they're like, oh, the resurrection. <laughs> yeah. But then they probably listened to Paul. Because again, if you, if you read Acts 16 to 34, you would think, hey man, this thing was done in like two minutes. Paul, great job. Be brief, be brilliant, be gone. No, heck no. Paul probably spoke for a couple of hours in this, in this center. But Luke is essentially distilling this down to the major point. And it's in that last point that I think is significant because Paul walked away. Now, he was actually offered like, hey, why don't you come back and explain to the Areopagus? Well, Paul beats feet because we all know that he goes to Corinth next. Well, why? Because he, he's not going to go on trial again, okay? Because I don't think they had double jeopardy at that time. So he's not going to go back to the same court, if you will, and put himself under those same auspices. Why do I put this image on here? Because the fact that Paul was acquitted and walked away is probably one of the most significant parts in addition to preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul walked away. We know Paul today. Paul is probably one of maybe, I'm going to say five people from the first century AD that we have more writings from than anyone else in history. Anyone. Anyone. Have you ever heard the, there's a, a great, I think it's Shelley or Byron, I am Ozymandias, look at my might. And it's these two statues sitting in the desert. No one remembers what a lot of these ancient kings says, but they remember what Paul said. The fact that he walked away was significant because there was gonna, this was his second missionary journey. We talked about the journey before. There was going to be this explosion of growth in Christianity. The image that you see here is like essentially from a Greek text that would have been published back into a, a book and monks long ago would have taken a long time and you know, put gold foil and everything around it. And it shows Paul in this majestic situation that he's preaching to the Areopagus and, and, the, and, the, uh, and the assembled body that's there. This is considered one of the most important cultural exchanges in first century AD because it was after this that you had this growth first in the Peloponnese in Greece and then outward into Europe. So does anyone remember the name? I think we talked about her previously. Who was the first Christian that, that Paul converted in Europe? Not Timothy, but Lydia was actually a woman. 
So we know that in the Areopagus, when he got done, because you can see here that there was a woman named Damaris and then a man named Dionysus. Now, we know Dionysus must have been a party guy because that's the same name as the Greek god of the god of wine. So we know that Dionysus must have been having fun. But the fact that Paul was there and he communicated to it, some people may read that and they may say, hmm, Paul, um, Paul didn't really convert that many people. He only had a, you know, these two people that mentioned. That's not the point. Paul is defending Jesus in the resurrection. Paul is defending. He is on trial for his life. And he's basically acquitted. And he's able to walk away and to continue his mission and at least plant those initial seeds. Next slide. Okay, so these are the discussion questions. Uh, I've gone over two minutes. My apologies for that. Uh, you can read them here. But I just want to ask your question. I held this up earlier, okay? How many times have you pulled this out? How many times in... A, a, a moment of, of passion or love from another and someone is telling you fascinating and, and you feel it vibrating and you're like, man, hang on one, one minute. And then you pull it out. Could it have waited? How many times did you sit down at maybe a moment when you were talking to your son or your daughter or one of your best friends about a life-changing event and the game's on in the background and you having difficulty having the first conversation when concentrating on the gain because someone is about to score, they're, they're, they're 30 yards out. You know, how many times have you thought about a promotion that's coming in your life? Idols are not just things that are cast in these little boxes. They are all around us. They are part of us. Idols can be both tangible and intangible. And oftentimes in our society today, most of the idols that we see, they are abstract. They are something that cannot be seen. They are reasoned with, okay? That next promotion, okay? that next time in front of pornography late at night, you know, those kind of things. So just think about that for a moment. Uh, let the questions resonate with you, and thank you very much for the opportunity. Amen.